Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet, the weekly podcast of Tablet Magazine. I'm Sarah Ivry. Today, the very big significance of a small town. If I say the word steadle, you probably think of a village with dirt roads, maybe there's some chickens roaming across them, somewhere in remote Eastern Europe. Of course, you also think of Jews. Shtetl is the Yiddish word for town, after all, and it connotes a Jewish town. Throughout Europe, shtetls, or the plural shtetlach in Yiddish, were decimated in the Holocaust. Since then, they've been the subject of countless academic studies, but they've also been fodder for lots of novels, films, works of art, and other cultural artifacts. How did the shtetl become such a popular object of inquiry in the past century? That is the question that Jeffrey Sandler wanted to answer in his new book called, appropriately enough, Shtetl. Sandler is a professor of Jewish studies at Rutgers University, and he's well known for his work on the popularization of Yiddish. He joins us on the podcast today to talk about this latest project. Jeff, welcome to Box Tablet. Thank you. When people hear the word shtetl, they have immediate associations to a supposedly simpler time when Jews lived together in a community that was warm and familiar. To what extent is that perception accurate? Well, the word shtetl in Yiddish just means town. could be a town anywhere, anytime, with anybody living in it. doesn't have to be in Eastern Europe. Uh, doesn't have to be before World War II, doesn't have to have a single Jewish person living in it. It just means town. But this word, especially as it migrates into other languages, uh, starts to connote a particular time and place and population, but also a whole set of values that are imagined that this place embodies. And they can be imagined in a very positive way, uh, a simpler life, a more pious life, greater sense of co communality can also be imagined in a negative way, uh, being in a very provincial backwater, being in a situation of political vulnerability and powerlessness and impoverishment. So it is – that's what attracted me to the subject is how this very simple word in Yiddish winds up becoming very rich in a wide range of connotations as it migrates into other languages. What – can you tell us a little bit what was life actually like in Shettles? Well, you know, that's – not an easy question to answer because they're not all the same. Uh, and they vary over time. They vary over place. And even the fortunes of an individual town uh, changed sometimes drastically uh, depending on political and economic circumstances around them. What might be thought of as uh, archetypal shtetl is a community that's centered around a marketplace, which was the economic center, at least originally for these towns as peasants from surrounding farm communities would bring uh, whatever they had raised to market once a week, sometimes twice a week, and sell it to both people who lived in the town and then to brokers who would buy all this produce and ship it off to various locations actually all over Europe. So it, it is a community that's centered around a marketplace. And at least originally, the uh, core activity of Jews in these towns was that they were there to facilitate this economy. They weren't the people raising 
the the wheat or the chickens or the eggs or whatever. Uh, but they were either overseeing their production or they were the brokers who were buying and selling and moving things or they ran stores that lined the marketplace that sold to uh, the peasant farmers the things that they needed they couldn't make for themselves, like cloth, for example, or um, you know, uh, leather boots or something like that. And um, that was uh, really the, the uh, organizing principle of these towns uh, to encourage Jews to settle in these towns because these towns, many of them were created in parts of what was called then the, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And the, these towns, they actually were in a wide swath of Eastern Europe, but mostly now uh, what's, what's Ukraine more or less. Um, these were largely underdeveloped areas and to encourage Jews to move to these sort of frontier towns and help build up the economy, uh, the nobles who owned the land uh, and controlled what was going on in the towns created incentives and said, look, if you come in here, I'll build you a synagogue. I'll let you freedom of worship. No problem. I will, you know, freedom of economic opportunity. We're not going to have, you know, restrictions on what you can and can't do for a living and things like that to uh, incentivize Jewish settlement. And this happened in dozens and dozens of communities and creating this eventually very large population scattered in provincial towns all across Eastern Europe. Uh, but of course, it, it's not stable, and there are political upheavals, there are economic changes, uh, and so the fortunes of these towns, uh, individually and collectively, you know, could rise and fall uh, remarkably, you know, with a remarkable variety. So it's hard to say, like, what was the typical town uh, like? But that desire is very strong to have an archetype. What are some big misperceptions that people have about what shtetls were? Um, one, I think, might be that these are Jewish towns. Uh, these are towns that always have a non-Jewish population. Sometimes Jews are the majority population. Sometimes they're not. But these towns always have other people living in them. And the interaction of Jews and their mostly Christian neighbors are integral to how these towns work. Uh, that's one. Another is an image of these towns as um, uh, centers of piety, which they were uh, up to a point. Uh, and as Jews... Uh, generally in Eastern Europe began to rethink what piety might mean and either reshape it, especially in, in terms of Hasidism, or reject it. Um, this was going on in these small towns as well as in big cities. Uh, so certainly by the time you get to the late 19th, early 20th century, you have living side by side some very pious Jews, often with very different ideas of what it means to be a pious Jew. And ardently secular, sometimes revolutionary Jews. Uh, so that's another uh, misconception. And that these towns were um, poor and uh, sort of cut off from modernity is also a misperception. They certainly are not at the center of action as the action becomes more and more urban in Eastern Europe for Jews in particular and for uh, other people as well. Um, but they're very connected to what's going on politically and culturally and especially through print, through reading newspapers and magazines and through youth group organizations and so on. They are uh, quite attuned 
to uh, the modern. And uh, these towns will have in them not only some very poor people, uh, but they'll have some very comfortable middle class people living side by side. And in fact, class divide was a big issue in these towns uh, as you had, you know, within the Jewish community, you had the haves and the have-nots, and they didn't always get along. You point out in the book that it was after World War II that great attention was suddenly paid to Stedels. Does that mean that before 1939, basically, there is no great interest either in the academic world or in popular culture as to what's going on in the world of the Stedel? Well, there is an interest, and it's, it, it takes different shapes. I would say in popular culture, um, there's a growing interest in uh, Shtetlach as a setting for plays and for movies. Um, you have artists going on sketching tours to depict these as picturesque uh, sites of bygone way of Jewish life. Uh, and you have travel accounts being written of the people who, say, from the United States who do go back to visit or German Jews who go to see these exotic Eastern Jews uh, with all their you know wild and, and crazy intense religious difference um, and cultural difference from the way nice middle-class West European Jews live. So there's a lot of, of, of that kind of popular interest in these as sites of not only what's going on there, but about thinking of yourself in relationship to what you're not. So if you're the immigrant who's come to America, you go back and you have these immigrants, they go back and they say, you know, if I hadn't left, I would look like that uh, pathetic-looking guy over there <laughs> with the, the scraggly beard and the sores on his face and the, the, the shoes with the holes in it, and thank God I went to America. You get a lot of that kind of validation of immigration. You also have a sense of what they lost, a sense of um, uh, a communality that you would have in a small town that if you're living in New York, it's a very different sense of, 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 of a communality. And of course, your life has been disrupted, the life you've left behind. Um, there's this big rupture in your life and you have to come to terms with that. And of course, for the, the West European Jews, they're looking at these East European Jews, on the one hand, with a bit of horror because they're so other. They're so, they so don't fit in. They're so not assimilated. On the other hand, they sit there and say, well, when we became so westernized and, and, and middle class and accommodating mainstream German Jewish culture, what did we lose? What do these guys have that we have? They have an energy. They have an intensity. They have a kind of Jewish uh, uh, sense of, of, of cultural certainty that we don't have. So there's a lot of looking to measure who you are against this site. Scholarship, there isn't very much in Jewish – Modern Jewish scholarship, you know, is starting to take shape in the 19th century, but they're not interested in Jews living in these little remote little towns. You know, ordinary life doesn't get that much scholarly attention. Where you start to see work happening in the like beginning of the 20th century are people interested in, in folklore. Uh, folk tales, folk art, folk music. And these, of course, are people who live uh, in big cities who have become very cosmopolitan and they want – the cultural treasures of an authentic Jewish folk life. So you have to go back into these remote towns and you have to collect them and find them. And of course, you do that so you can publish anthologies and use folk melodies as the basis for symphonies. And you know, you're going to transform this stuff into high art. So there was that uh, interest as well. And uh, other scholarly enterprises, mostly outside of the universities in Eastern Europe because 
they just weren't going to accommodate the study of Jews very much. And if they were, it might be an interest in, you know, ancient Israelite life, but, you know, modern Jewish life in, in, in Poland or in Lithuania, very little attention. So it's a very mixed bag before World War II, and it's just starting to coalesce in certain places. And then, of course, you have the Holocaust. After the Holocaust, here in the United States, we have uh, some popular uh, portrayals of Shettle, in particular, of course, a person thinks of Fiddler on the Roof. But what other cultural uh, matter right after the war do we see that sets itself in the Shettle? Probably what winds up being the most influential and it's also one of the most problematic works of uh, trying to represent shtetl life is a book called Life is with People, which uh, comes out in 1952. And it's the work of two anthropologists, uh, Mark Sporowski and Elizabeth Herzog. And it grows out of research that was conducted during World War II, um, uh, initially under the supervision of Ruth Benedict, an anthropologist at Columbia University, and then taken over by Margaret Mead. Um, to study immigrants from the countries that we were fighting in World War II so that we would understand their culture so that when the war is over and we're assuming we're going to win this war, we need to understand those cultures so we can deal with them. And there was a lot of interest, of course, in Eastern Europe. And they were interviewing – they weren't looking for Jews. They were looking for Poles and they were looking for Ukrainians and they were looking for Lithuanians and so on and so forth and Russians. But a lot of their informants, because they're immigrants in New York where they were doing this work, a lot of them were Jews from these countries and they said, you know – their culture isn't the same as the culture of their Christian neighbors. Um, what do we have here? And they decided that this was sort of a project in its own right. And how are they going to take this – all this material that they got from all of these different informants and figure out what was the essence? What was the pattern of this – East European Jewish culture, because that was the anthropological thinking at the time, very sort of structural patterns that underlay, you know, what you saw on the surface. And they decided the shtetl, the shtetl was the pattern. And even though they had informants from big cities, they had informants from rural villages, that these towns varied enormously, uh, uh, everything was condensed into the shtetl. And the study that Life is with People produces describes the archetypal shtetl that, of course, never existed in a timeless vacuum <laughs> where, you know, there's no history. There's, you know, almost no presence of outside forces like, you know, the non-Jewish world that they, they live in the midst of, uh, but outlines uh, a sort of idealized way of life. This book was enormous, was widely read and was enormously influential. It shaped a lot of um, other representations, including probably most famously the musical Fiddler on the Roof, uh, where uh, a sort of a condensed version of sort of like the cliff notes of Life is with People was distributed to all the cast members to read. So it's like, this is what you need to know about this culture. So um, it's uh, – uh, and of course, it took a while, but at a certain point, scholars started looking at this and saying, this book is really problematic. There are all kinds of assumptions here that just don't add up. Why is it the way it is? And so it, it itself becomes uh, – starting uh, in the 1990s in particular, when a new edition of the book is published, it has an introduction by uh, Barbara Kirshenblatt-Gimblet, a folklorist at NYU, who looked at the history of this project and says, why do we have what we have? Because we now look at it and we say, this is not the way we would study this subject now. 
why did this make sense in the early post-war period? So that's probably the most influential. But there are uh, some other really interesting phenomena early on, works by artists, um, translations of Sholem Aleichem, which start appearing um, in English. Uh, there are hardly any translations before World War II, but then you have uh, major anthologies of, of, of his work and of other Yiddish writers. And uh, they're all after capturing what was called the lost world or the vanished world of East European Jewry. And in this, the shtetl winds up becoming uh, the center of attention, the organizing principle. Jeff, in the past 15 years, we've seen a lot of uh, popular imaginary returns to the shtetl among contemporary culture makers. Off the bat, I can think of the Coen brothers and A Serious Man. They have the opening scene that's set in a shtetl. And of course, Jonathan Safran Foer's Everything is Illuminated goes back to the shtetl. How do you understand the desire of younger writers and filmmakers and artists who have no direct connection to the era of the shtetl, uh, that they're setting uh, their stories there. It's a, such an interesting phenomenon because you really see a burgeoning of this late 1980s, really into the 1990s and continuing uh, to the present of especially fiction writers but other other work as well um, where people are imagining their way into uh, – an East European Jewish past, often with some sense of family that they never knew, um, which is different than an earlier generation who had lived in these towns and then are representing a, a world that they knew that they knew what they lost. This next generation, they don't even know what they lost, but they know they lost something and they want to feel their way into it, think their way into it, travel their way into it, imagine their way into it. And uh, so you get this spate of like at least a dozen novels uh, written, uh, many of them not trying to recreate the actuality, but sometimes to come up with something very counterfactual. So you have um, uh, novels that try to imagine what it would be like to be a radical lesbian feminist in a shtetl in uh, you know turn of the century Russia um, and you know the, to imagine it the way you would like it to have been uh, to create a sort of you know ancestral figure you never had, um, or other exercises that are uh, trying to locate who you are and how you understand yourself, especially you know as a Jew, in relationship to a past that's out there, but that you you have very tenuous connections to. You have very little information um, in terms of family lore or photographs or what, whatever you, you, you might be able to access. So the imagination kicks in in a very, very powerful way. So in some ways, it's liberating at this moment to imagine Shtetl because you know nothing about it, so it can be whatever you want. Well, that is, to me, is one, one of the things so interesting about these projects is uh, what, if it's a work of the imagination... What do you think it needs to have to root it in a shared understanding of what these places were, which itself is rooted on other representations, especially literary ones? So, you know, where do most of these writers get their literary ideas? From reading Isaac Bashevis Singer in translation, of course, and uh, and other uh, works of of shtetl fiction that were written in primarily in Yiddish, but also in in Hebrew and some other and other languages. Uh, but reading them in translation, and of course, those authors are 
reworking an actuality, and in some cases, certainly with Bashevis, a lot of it is you know very fantastic, very supernatural, and and um, uh, striving for something that sounds like uh, a legend rather than um, some kind of portrait of real life, uh, and so, but that becomes the basis. And so you have this kind of remediating of a literary construct of this kind of environment. And that's what they're trying to inhabit, not so much an actual place, even for writers like Fower, who, you know, that novel is based on an actual trip he took to look for the actual town his family came from. But it's gonzo, you know, it has nothing to do with any actuality and, and, and flagrantly so and, 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 and very cleverly so. And that kind of impulse partly is, is, is a very honest response to the fact that I don't know what, what life and I can't. So since I can't, Rather than that being a loss or, you know, a dead end, I'm just going to start inventing. In the book, you also have a fascinating discussion about this trend in heritage tours and experiential projects. You talk about a place that's almost like colonial Williamsburg, but there's a cheder and there's men with yarmulkes running around. Uh, you're discussing basically the project of a woman who is named Yafa Eliach. And I wonder, tell us who she is and what is she trying to do? What is her project? Okay, this is a remarkable project that I think will actually never see the light of day. Uh, but that doesn't matter. It's still fascinating. And uh, to put it in context, I mean, you mentioned heritage tourism really starts with the fall of communism when uh, it's much easier to travel to Eastern Europe. And in fact, now there are all kinds of efforts to encourage uh, travel to sites of uh, former Jewish communities, uh, particularly in Poland, but not only in Poland. Um, so that has really flourished. But alongside this is an idea that um, Yafa Eliach created, and she's a Holocaust survivor. Um, she was four years old when uh, the Jewish community of uh, Eshishak, this town that's now in Lithuania, that she uh, grew up in, uh, almost all the Jews were rounded up and shot. And her family uh, was one of like a couple dozen people who managed to escape, and most of them survived the war. So this is a place she just barely remembers, and only as a child. She becomes, uh, she comes to the United States, she becomes a, a, a pioneering figure in Holocaust studies. She's in the President's Commission to, uh, that eventually created the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and it houses uh, a project that she initiated while she was, you know, working on all this Holocaust stuff. And she she writes about this. She says, you know, here I am doing all this work on how Jews die. How did Jews live? And I knew how people lived in this town. And so she decided to collect photographs of every Jewish person who lived in that town uh, before World War II. And I, she was motivated in part because her her grandmother operated one of the town's two photography studios. And this is people didn't have their own cameras by and large, but you went you wanted your picture taken, you went to a photography studio and they took your portrait. And uh, so she amassed a collection of hundreds and hundreds of photographs, and these eventually were selected to uh, line the walls of what's called the Tower of Faces in the Holocaust Museum in Washington, DC. And then she got the idea of creating a living history museum. The model is like Colonial Williamsburg or Sturbridge Village or these other uh, – Plymouth Plantation, these other places where you have reenactors 
who um, are in either a, an authentic environment of the actual old buildings like Williamsburg or reconstructed like Plymouth Plantation. And you know, tourists come and they walk around and they interact with the these people who are pretending to be, you know, 18th century blacksmiths or whatever. And uh, that's how you – and you watch – daily life being reenacted and and you know they're weird you know they they're this they're this strange hybrid of you know what moment are you in and you know what's the reality here but they're very appealing places so she was going to recreate a shtetl and she uh, got land donated to her in the town of Rishon LeZion in Israel in Israel um, on what was going to be a golf course, but uh, they decided this was a better use of this land. <laughs> and actually, they, they did start work on it. But uh, as far as I know, this project is is is, is not going to be realized. But it, in a way, it doesn't matter because the vision of it, and she mapped this out in, you know, she had a website and promotional material and so on, which is utterly fascinating uh, because when you do this kind of enterprise of a totally immersive recreation, at some point, it's got to stop. Right. At some point, the recreation ends and the rest of the world begins. Uh, and there are all kinds of interesting limitations in this project. So one thing that I was struck by that in this recreation of Jewish life, where are the, where, where's the, where are the Christians who lived in this town? They don't have houses. They don't have a church. They're, they're not there. That's, to me – a sort of striking omission. I mean, when you think about, for example, by comparison, Plymouth Plantation, you not only have the pilgrims, you have the Wampanoag Indians who show up and not only do stuff, they speak Wampanoag, right? And the reenactors who are playing the, the pilgrims, they speak some approximation of you know 17th century English. So I actually um, once heard Yafa Elif give a presentation about this project when it was in the planning stages. And you know, she was taking questions. I raised my hand. I had so many questions. But I said, all right, I can only ask one. The question I asked was, what language are you going to speak in, in this town? Because all right, if you're recreating the town, they're going to speak a Lithuanian dialect of Yiddish, which would be very authentic. But you're going to – not too many people are going to be able to like interact. Um, and so would they speak? English? Would they speak Hebrew? Would they like have English days in here? I, you know, I just was sitting there. The more I thought about it, I thought, I don't know what you would do. So I asked her this question and she just sort of stared at me, gave me a look, you know, and she said, that's a very good question. We're working on it, <laughs> which implied to me that like they didn't have an answer, which in, 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 not that like that's a bad thing. It's just it's striking that you could think about recreating the physical environment and the cultural environment and all kinds of really interesting reenactments like the, the idea that you could come here and you could celebrate your wedding, your actual wedding following the traditional customs of this town. Um, so you would be you would be a reenactor. You wouldn't just be a tourist and it wouldn't be a reenactment of a wedding. It would be a wedding. You would wind up being married. You know, I mean, that's really pushing the limits of what it means to try and imagine your way back into um, this place. Uh, so uh, for me, this project is so compelling because it is all about testing our limits of what it would mean to step back into this world that's so compels us and fascinates us. Can you really – how far can you take that? And the further you go, the more challenges that emerge that are actually really illuminating. There are, 
I don't think of them so much as, as, as problematic as, as eye-opening. What do you think that this kind of almost romanticization of the idea of shtetl implies about how we feel about Jewish life today? That's a good question. Um, I don't know that there's a single answer because when you look at these different engagements, they, they kind of sprawl all over. Um, I do think that because so many people uh, – Certainly American Jews, but I think if you think about just world Jewry, so many people, if they go back in their family a few generations, they lived in one of these towns. So there is a sense of uh, origin tied to these places that's very powerful. And because it's an origin that is lost, you can go back and see a lot of these towns, but what people are usually struck by is what's not there, is the absence of physical traces, certainly of people. Um, and so that then opens the door for trying to repair one's own personal history and to uh, orient one's sense of self uh, as Jews living in the diaspora, in your diaspora heritage. So it runs maybe next to, maybe uh, 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 sometimes opposed to uh, a Zionist narrative of like you want origins, you go back to you know Jerusalem, right? You go back to the, the, the site of ancient Israel. Uh, here's a narrative that says something more recent, uh, more localized – and uh, more tied to my particular family and that this will somehow help consolidate or stabilize a, a complicated sense of uh, Jewish self in relationship to, to a past. As people are further and further away from the generations of immigration. So you know, more and more American Jews um, don't have a living relative who came from Eastern Europe. There's still a fair number, but the majority don't. And so how do you orient yourself to that narrative in sort of post-immigrant era? And this becomes a very powerful way of doing so, I think, precisely because in some ways it's so open-ended. Um, even though it can be highly specific, you can go and you can do genealogical research and you can read the Yisker book, the memorial book from your particular – your family's particular town and you can, you can get high – you can find photographs. You can do all kinds of stuff that's very specific. But they're fragments and you need to fill them in. And that exercise of filling in, which leaves a lot of open spaces, um, provides great opportunities for people, I think, to think into their Jewish past. Jeff Chandler, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Jeffrey Chandler is a professor of Jewish studies at Rutgers University, and he's the author of Shtetl, a vernacular intellectual history. It's out now from Rutgers University Press. How about you? Would you like to go to a Plymouth plantation-like shtetl encampment? What would you get out of it? We'd like to know the answer to that question. So go to our website, tabletmag.com, or post a comment on Facebook on our page there. And, of course, be sure to share this podcast with other people who might be interested in it. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. Thank you so much for joining us. Please join us again next time.